My name is Graham Twine, and this is the Suncoast Fresh podcast. I'm excited to introduce to you Mr. Matt Stone, GQ Chef of the Year. I get to call him my mate. He is from Oak Ridge Winery in the Yarra Valley, and let's go. Matt Stone, welcome to the podcast. You think that's a cool name? The podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All things produce, all things chefs. Oh yeah, giving chefs a prod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. <laughs> um, I do appreciate your time. I know you're really, really busy. Absolute pleasure, as always, mate. But um, yeah, so let's make this uh, pretty relaxed. You'd think I'd have questions and stuff ready, but no, no. But the idea, as I said to you earlier, is that I get to talk to lots of amazing people, and people always were asking me about cool people and chefs and growers and you know what's their story how'd they get into it how do they maintain it so that's a little bit of what I want to talk to you about today but great so you were you, like a little bit of history you sort of Perth boy uh, between Perth and Mugger River I can't right yeah. yeah yeah so does that mean you're a surfer or a... um I used to surf a lot that's yeah. actually how I started cooking I um I was skipping school a lot so I could um go to the beach and get some waves and then obviously after a little while, my parents caught on to that. And my parents were very realistic with the situation. They kind of said, look, we can't really stop you from doing this. So if you know, if you want to pursue with this, um, you can leave school, but you've got to get a job. So naturally, I wanted to get a job in the evenings so yeah. I could um, be at the beach during the day. Um, and that meant I started washing dishes in a restaurant. So I'd never, ever imagined being a cook at all. I was a very fussy eater as a child. Cooking was never something that was huge in our family. We always grew a bit of food in the backyard, but never you know, never on a huge scale and cooking was, it almost seemed like a chore to my parents. Um, yeah. You know, when I was a kid, my dad used to enjoy cooking a barbie and cooking a curry on a Sunday afternoon sort of thing, but it was never a huge part of our growing up. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, so, kitchen hand then, you were, I remember you telling me ages ago you were quite good at cricket as well? Yeah, I played um, state cricket. Um, I actually had a scholarship in high school, um, which was really cool. So I played cricket every single day, for years and years and years um, and then I was played for WA in the uh, under 16 squad um, and I, I still love cricket I wish I could play cricket now but I kind of fell out of love with it for a bunch of different reasons um, yeah. but I think I'll definitely get back at it you know in the club level sometime in my life um, yeah. but I do enjoy nothing more than sitting on a couch for five days watching a test match from start to finish yeah yeah <laughs> I guess once you stop playing cricket you sort of lose it doesn't it? it's like you use it or lose it Amazing. Yeah, I think, um, I guess your motivations just change to where you yeah. want to put your energy and your time yeah. and, you know, being a professional sports person, particularly, you know, at that time, 15, 16 years ago, there wasn't near the opportunity that there is now. So yeah. I think, you know, you either had to really, kids are loving it, <laughs> yeah, you had yeah. to really, um, you know, be into it and want to give it everything and make it your whole life and career. And I remember, you know, at that time, people like Mike Hussey, you know, one of the greatest West Australian cricketers ever. He was still working full time as a plumber and mm. playing for WA and Australia. You know, like yeah, it was, right. you still had to work. So it wasn't near as glamorous and as paid as it was today. And I guess that's part of the motivation to go, well, I need to do something else with my life. You know what we should do? We should set the scene. Where are we right now, Matt? Uh, we're at an amazing place called Ceres uh, in Brunswick East, uh, which is quite close to where I live here in Melbourne. And it's a massive community farm, um, farm, restaurant, shop, nursery that does a lot of amazing things. You can rent a plot of land here to grow your own vegetables if you don't have space at home. Uh, you can buy vegetables from the market garden. There's a lot of work with disadvantaged and disabled um, people from the community that you know get jobs here and it's just a really great place and I, I love Joe and I both love to come here 
on our weekends and just hang out and it feels real. There's chickens running around everywhere and, you know, it's a little feeling of being on a farm, but we're just in Brunswick, you know, 20 minutes out of the city. Yeah, it is amazing. There's lots of little kids here playing in sand on their little tractors and stuff. So uh, it reminds you of um, that place I took you in Brizzy, which um, I'll remember yeah. the name in five minutes. What's it called? I remember it well. It was beautiful. <laughs> um, yeah, so when, what happened after that? You went and worked with Yoast. Sounds like toast. That's how I remember to say that. Yeah, well, I, um, well from there I started excuse me, cooking in, in Margaret River. I uh, worked at a place called Luna State Winery, which is a really famous winery down in Margaret River. Mm. From there I worked at a restaurant in Perth called Star Anise, which at its time was sort of the, the top end of dining in, in WA. Ended up working there for five years, became the sous chef at the age of 20, which is um, pretty young to have that kind of responsibility. But I guess um, my mentor, David Coomer, saw something uh, in me to, to give me that opportunity. We then opened a restaurant together called Pata Negra. Oh, okay. Um, uh, when I was around 21, uh, hugely successful, it was a Spanish restaurant. I went to Spain for some time to do some research, came back, opened the restaurant, went really well. Um, and then being a bit naive, I didn't really contract myself well into the business and I got brought out very quickly. Yep. Um, and Another that kind of ended our relationship there. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which was hard, you know, when you work for someone for so long and they become your mentor for them to pretty much screw you just over money. I do think that that's a good lesson for young punters and, you know, hopefully that young punters do listen to this sort of, these podcast podcasts that we're doing because, you know, that's really good advice is to get your paperwork. Absolutely. You know, I was very naive. I you know, invested 50 grand, um, you know, what is it, 10 years ago, a bit longer, um, which at that time was a bit, lot more than it is today. Yeah. Um, and particularly at that age, it's a lot of money. Yeah, that's that, that is that's, a... That's a house deposit back then. Yeah, so, yeah, that is a... Uh, which I got that money back, nothing more um, yeah. than that investment, uh, which is questionable again. But um, there was a real lesson in in doing all of that kind of stuff right. And no matter how much you kind of have faith and trust someone, um, you know, it's always difficult. You just got to get these things clear and be open, you know, you've... It's it's all good on a handshake, but I think you need to have you know it on paper as well. Just yeah, to, just to be sure, because money can change people a lot. Yeah, yeah, and, and just the time changes people too. The rules, the the barriers, everything does change. So it's lovely to have it down, and it works both ways. It works Absolutely. for them and you, whoever it might be. So yeah, you know, I my strongest advice is to do that because I reckon I've been done at least twice as well in yeah. business stuff. Yeah, um, and it sucks, but um, from what was you know the most crushing thing. To happen to me in my career, um, you know, it was pretty devastating. I wanted to leave the industry. I I stopped cooking for a little while and I thought of what I could do. And then I had no money and I had no other skills. So I ended up back in the kitchen again, just <laughs> out of necessity. And I took a job at a restaurant that I had no interest in at all. It was just really good pay. Um, and it was a sous chef at this Italian restaurant in the middle of Perth CBD. You know, I don't know yeah. nothing about Italian food. I'd never wanted to cook for 300 people a day, you know, in a lunch service. And it was just really not me, but, you know, they were paying me well. So I was like, yeah, yeah. I'll do it. And that's where I kind of thought, you know what, maybe I need to keep pursuing with this. And then, you know, the worst thing led to the best thing. That's when I met Yoast. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I met Yoast. Uh, so Yoast is a, um, he calls himself an artist. He's a, he's a Dutch migrant. He moved, his family moved from Holland uh, when he was eight years old. Uh, they're a family, uh, sorry, a flower growing family. Uh, and Yo's dad was a publican, so he ran pubs in Holland, and then they moved out to Australia and started uh, exporting or importing tulips. Yep. Uh, but Yoast is very entrepreneurial himself, so he, from a young age he was making his own businesses, doing his own projects, and you know he's really the biggest probably advocate of sustainability in Australia, and he's all that passion came through doing flower installations in restaurants. Um, you know, using 
waste products to create beautiful sculptures to put flowers in and then through that process saw how wasteful restaurants are mm. um, and then came up with the concept of building this restaurant called The Greenhouse. Yeah. Which um, he proposed to me the concept, um, you know, a, a giant cube covered in plants with a rooftop garden uh, serving food made from scratch and you know people say that but like properly from scratch like milling grain um yeah. making our own cheese like absolutely everything from back to basics hello yeah <laughs> he's having a lot of fun stoked. um so this was a whole new concept for me and um it was quite overwhelming so initially i i turned him down i was like mate this is way too crazy you know i'd come from a fine dining restaurant where you know it was a completely different idea so i turned down the offer and then i went back to this italian restaurant and i was you know cooking prawn chili pastas and all this kind of <laughs> stuff that I really had no care. Delicious to eat, of course, but yeah. no, um, no sense of love in that kind of food for me yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. at that time. Uh, I ate a lot of pasta, but it was just yeah. from, from the cooking side of it, it just wasn't there. So I, um, I phoned Yost back after two weeks and he said, oh, first thing he said was, I've been expecting this call. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he waited um, and then I agreed and I resigned from the Italian restaurant pretty much that day and then you know my next days off I was in Melbourne uh in a in Yoast giant transit van at 3am driving around Melbourne putting flowers in restaurants talking about what was possible for us to do wow so that's a turning point absolutely yeah wow so then that happened didn't it so you put all that together and I, I think my first sort of uh even getting to know who you were was when you did the pop-up in Sydney uh, that's when the first I heard of you guys. But yep. um, so, but you would have been over it for a couple of years before you did that? Or? Yeah, so the Perth Greenhouse went really well. Um, I had a really open attitude towards it. My attitude was just say yes to everything. You know, yeah. I'd never really made bread before, let alone milled grain to make flour to make bread. And we just yeah. said yes. And I had a really great sous chef, Courtney Gibb, who is now, he's still a baker. Um, chef turned into baker over in WA. And he and I were young guys given an opportunity given a chance really um and we really made the most of that chance we we won best new restaurant that year from the west australian good food guys i won best young chef from gourmet travel magazine um you know this is all at the age of 22 yeah which is, um which was pretty wild and that you know showed the hospitality world what was possible with sustainability it didn't just have to be you know sprouted lentils and mung beans and you know burning incense in the corner it can yeah. be an actual cool restaurant that is serving some like you know good food that's um you know as as good as any other restaurant in australia so that went super well then we got the chance to do a pop-up version in circular key in sydney which was um i mean the most ideal restaurant location you could ever ask for yeah in australia if not the world so we got the chance to do that and that really put us on a world scale you know like we had journalists from around the world coming we had food people from around the world we had you know, Neil Perry was eating with us every second day. Uh, you know, like all of these chefs that I'd always idolised were now coming to my restaurant to eat the food I was cooking. So it was a pretty, um, pretty magical experience. Yeah. Peter Gilmore would have been looking down from... Peter Gilmore hated it. Did he really? Well, yeah. we, we destroyed his view, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think, I, I think I, that's how I, I saw it because I went down there. I had to try the snow egg as you do. And, uh, yeah. yeah, so... Yeah. Um, we basically put up our structure and blocked his view of the, of the Sydney Harbour. So, <laughs> How long were you there for? Uh, we were there for about 12 weeks in total. Oh, right, yeah. Um, yeah. That's but, a... you know, the building was amazing. It was uh, built from 100% recycled or recyclable materials. So we put up the building in about two and a half weeks yeah. um, using a roll-form steel machine. So it kind of punches it all out. And it's like Lego, basically. You put it all together. 
Um, and then the whole building was recycled from there. And actually, there's a farm down in Geelong now that have a good half of the restaurant um, on their farm, which they run a little cafe out of. Nice. Uh, which is really, really cool. Yeah, right. Okay. So, um, so that you kept going. Did you go overseas after that? or what? Uh, From there, we went back to the Perth restaurant. Um, then we did another pop-up of the greenhouse for the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival's 20th anniversary yep. in Federation Square. And that's where I had the chance to host um, some amazing chefs from around Australia and around the world, um, including Rene Rezepi from yep. Loma. Yep. Um, so that was my chance to meet, you know, meet an absolute icon of our industry and get my foot in the door to one of the best restaurants in the world, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, so shortly after cooking with Rene, um, I went to Copenhagen. And I got the chance to do a stage at Noma, which was yep. um, really amazing. Excuse me. Be a part of the MAD um, symposiums. Um, as a guest, Yost was meant to speak at one of them, but unfortunately, on our journey there, his father passed away. So he, he had to rush back to Australia. And um, Greg Hargraves, our business partner, and I continued on, which we didn't end up doing the, the presentation because without Yost, it just wasn't going to be the same. And under yeah. the circumstances, it wasn't quite appropriate. So. So, yeah, but we still went and that's where I got the chance to discover Nordic cuisine and, and meet a lot of people there. And I think since then I've traveled back to Copenhagen every year. So I think I've done maybe six trips. Yeah. I might have missed one one year or so. But, um, you know, even to the point that I was just there uh, in, when was that, the start of October, uh, as a guest to, to trial the new game season menu. So, you know, I've got yeah. a really great relationship with with both Rene and, and the people that run that restaurant now and some amazing friends in Copenhagen. You know, I can arrive there and... Immediately, I'm having coffee with people that yeah. you know, I haven't seen for ages, and it's a really welcoming thing. And you know, that's one of the beauties of our, our cooking world is that you can travel to a place I never imagined I'd ever go to. You know, to me, I'd never even heard of Copenhagen. You know, little you know, greater Scandinavia and that part of the world, I'd never had any aspiration to go there. But now it's a place that I can feel completely at home at. You know, which is pretty amazing. And and that's what food does. Food gives you that opportunity to bring people from all around the world together. And I'm really lucky I get to travel a lot around the world. I get to work a lot with Tourism Australia and go places I never would have been before. And now with the power of social media and the power of food, I can arrive in a city where I know no one, make a post about it. And, you know, within a couple of hours, I've got chefs inviting me to their restaurant, to, to their bars. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty special thing that, um, that we have going for us, for sure. How do you keep so such a, a a good bloke like you've always had time for me you've always had time for new people you've always had time for you know like from what i hear in the kitchen you you have this ability to be able to get people to be able to do things and do them well and feel good about themselves and but still you know hit targets and numbers and all the things you need to do like what's the secret um i just i think just treat people how you like to be treated you know i kind of in my early years in the kitchen copped a lot of abuse and a lot of that classic you know yeah sort of stuff that it doesn't exist anymore which is um i mean i'm sure it does a little bit but um definitely not in in my environment um and you know you don't want to be a part of that and our industry is super hard it's really you know both physically and mentally demanding so you know the more inviting you can make that environment the longer people will stay you know like our team at oak ridge at the moment uh we've got one of our young chefs leaving now but our core team has been together for three and a half years yeah um you know and, and that's because we look after our staff we you know every year we send everyone on not at once individually um, to a restaurant in Australia that they want to work at for a couple of weeks you know nice. so like last year George my young chef we he went to Biota to work with James for a couple yep. of weeks and you know we do those kind of uh, we just did a chef swap actually with um, Arc, with Arc yeah, yeah, yeah up in Brizzy so Alana sent down one of her chefs and yeah. we sent up one of ours yeah 
uh, which is a really cool concept because you know that doesn't cost anything more than the flight and some accommodation because yeah. you're covering the shifts either side. So yeah, that's yeah. A, a cool concept that I think uh, a few more chefs should look at. Yeah, that's um, lovely. It's sort of amazing how you know open-minded you are, and um, yeah, are people <laughs> copying that and doing that? Is that more of a thing? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's a um, kids tearing it up with their uh, Mack trucks. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it's a new. The game's changed now. Like it's a new. It's a new environment. I remember, you know, the people that trained us would never share a recipe. They would never share a supplier. Yeah. They would never, um, you know, message each other and say, "Hey, that's really cool. Where'd you get that? Or how'd you do that?" It was very secretive and hidden. And now, people do it all the time. You know, I constantly sharing recipes with. You know, we do a lot of experimenting with fermentation and making some really cool stuff. And we get hit up constantly about how did you do that? And I'll tell people straight away because the more we can share knowledge, the more knowledge we gain and the better the industry becomes. That is just the secret, isn't it? Yeah. That is it. That's it. That's the secret. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's it. That finishes. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when you've got these young guys, I mean, how do you know when it's time to, you know, I mean, actually, let's go one more step back on your history there. Uh, can you remember where I met you? I was in the alley there. What's that hardware lane? Yeah, at Silo. Silo. Yep. Can you remember the first thing you ever fed me? You slid it across the bar to me. Oh, was it crickets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a good. So that was a good time. And that was the same same sort of concept. You were, yeah, that was the um, the world's first waste-free cafe. That's right. Um, which is truly amazing. And when I say waste-free, I'm not just talking food and... And stuff like that, like no rubbish bin at all, no no plastics, no boxes, no nothing. So it was a really big challenge for us to, to open that restaurant, but it was a really important challenge. And it's really influenced, you know, restaurants all around the world. You know, it's changed systems. You know, for example, we were getting milk from Schultz Dairy in, um, in vats that went back and forth. And now they have a system. It's been a few years, of course, but these things take time where every single cafe and restaurant that they supply now has the option to take their milk in vats and not plastic bottles. Um, and by even us doing that at, at Oak Ridge, we save 24,000 plastic bottles a year. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the kind of influence we had from that tiny little, you know how small it was. It was, yeah, yeah. It was, it was frustratingly small, but, yeah. um, you know, and it's, and all of the work we've done around sustainability, I've really realized you get frustrated because you want things to change immediately and you want people to think the way you think. But as I've grown and matured, I've realized that things take time. Yeah. Um, you know, it was 10 years, it was actually a couple of weeks ago, 10 years since we opened the greenhouse in Perth. Wow. Ten years. It doesn't feel like that, but, um, and it makes me feel really old when I say that. <laughs> but it, um, and you know, and it's only now that a lot of these practices that we implemented in that building are happening. So, you know, you just have to be a little bit patient with it as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I put that post up a little while back about what we're trying to do, and, and it really is a, a challenge of trying to reduce, you know, the yeah. plastic. And I do want to talk to you about that. And is there a way that people can, you know, get that information have you got like a you know hey here's my book on you know how to be more no, sustainable no, in the not kitchen really or... i think it's um well i think the first thought you can have is that nothing is too small like even if it's you know i use the example of even if you've got no room at home everyone's got at least a window seal that they can grow a pot of parsley yeah um, and by growing a pot of parsley you're not buying parsley that's flavorless in a plastic bag from the supermarket that you end up wasting half of because you never use the whole thing yeah. uh, you can take what you need that's one step you know, next step is um, instead of buying your spices or nuts and, and stuff like that in little packets, tiny little 100 gram packets from the supermarket, make the time every few weeks to go to a grocer um, that you can fill up jars or fill up even paper bags is a better option mm. because the paper bags at least can be composted. Yeah. Um, 
And then when you start to do a few small things, it's actually just kind of happens naturally. You start to go, well, actually, maybe I won't do that. And I think, I think you can agree with me on this one is eating seasonally is a uh, great step towards being sustainable. Yeah, yeah. Like the fact that you can buy asparagus all year and it often is coming from Peru or Mexico. How well, just about. So January, <laughs> that's when that started. Yeah. And how, um, how unsustainable is that? Yeah. You know, like it's not even just the physical waste that you have, you know, it's the amount of crazy emissions. So, um, I just did a talk in Galway at a festival called Food on the Edge and it'll be online shortly. Um, and, you know, I talked about a lot of things, but one of them is that the 58% of the world's carbon emissions come from the food system. You know, we talk about transport and all this kind of stuff. Uh, planes, cars, buses, trains, trams, all of our transportation is only 11%. Wow. And, you know, we talk about that being a big issue because no one wants to touch the food side of it because everyone, because it's such a big commodity. And it's our comfort as well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, people, because we're, we're, we're spoiled. We, we're super spoiled. The fact that, you know, asparagus is one example, but there's more like strawberries all year round, avocados all year round. Like, yes, they're in season somewhere, but like, I mean, that's kind of taking the joy and pleasure out of food as well. Like I, you know, for me, one of the most exciting things is when it gets to, you know, in the Yarra Valley, our, we grow amazing stone fruit and berries, but it, they come on a bit later than other areas because it's quite cool. So it's not often until mid-January that I'll get the first ripe from the sun peach. Yeah. And that is the most delicious piece of fruit you can ever eat, yeah. you know. So like that idea of waiting is really exciting. And, and when you do, it just tastes so much better. Uh, it, it does it does naturally, but it, like yeah. that excitement around it, I, I think I, is... I think it's like if we had Christmas every day, it'd be shit. Exactly right. You know, exactly. and... And it is the same, you know, as we sit under this beautiful fig tree, you know, that they're here five minutes and learning how to cook, you know, e.g. preserve, ferment, you know, take advantage of it so you can enjoy it at other times of year. I really think that that should be the basis of how we eat. And yeah, you're right. I don't think we'll stop the machine that's happening, you know, in a hurry no. about, you know, trying to get you know, in my market in Brazil this week, we've got U.S. lemons and uh Egyptian and how many lemons. lemon trees do you see in australia like <laughs> yeah, they're out of season but there yeah. will not be enough set lemons yeah. in australia to, to yeah. just cover you know what people think and um if you go to a supermarket and you can't get a lemon someone's going to bring one in so yeah that, that that's where education over time about the seasons about what we're talking to that's why you said it's a slow game before that's why it's going to take years for us to even understand yeah you know um well we have a um a lot of people ask what it, what inspiration do i take with cooking and it's not modern techniques and modern gadgets and stuff you know we take inspiration from proven primitive techniques you know before the evolution of the refrigerator before all of this you know different stuff like people were preserving food for a long long time yeah. um and these foods are often healthier you know like lacto fermenting fruits and vegetables is one of the healthiest things we can consume you know by putting all of these good bacteria into our gut and all of that kind of stuff affects our mental health hugely so you know we're seeing huge amounts of mental health issues and I really believe that food is a big part of that. Of course, oh. our working environment and substance abuse and all of the rest of it has a factor, of course it does. But I think um, our gut health has a huge part of that. And you know, if you look back in time, these things didn't exist near like they do today. Of course they did a little bit, but not nearly as common as they are. And I think a lot of that is based on our diet and our diet is based around convenience now. So we're eating a lot of food that is nutrient dead. Yeah. Instead of things like, you know, that are lively and, and full of, you know, good bacteria and, and life, basically. So, I think there's starting to be more information on that. Um, but you're dead, right? We're all pushing ourselves just to the brink. Yep. And uh, unless you've got a veggie patch like you have, like there is right in front of us here. But um, it really does seem like a challenge to not 
eat conveniently and do that sort of thing at least a, a you know a bit yeah and um you know people might say oh you're you're, you're lucky with the the restaurant that you choose you know at oakridge there you've got that beautiful garden which i was at the day you dug it up and and uh all the photos you put up i, I see is it's beautiful um uh, so therefore, you've, you know, you're surrounding yourself with the right environment to be able to do those techniques. So it is a slow yeah. game, but um, I do think that it, it yeah, is and definitely it, in the future. And it, I mean, it's it's easy for me. I'm a, a pretty privileged, you know, white dude in his early 30s, you know, that has a great job and a great partner and a, a beautiful house and I earn good money and stuff like that. So it's easy for me to sit here and say these kind of things. But, um, you know, I think the biggest thing for, for busy families to take away is you can't make... Like what it could be more valuable to your family than making time to cook, yeah. you know. And I think not everyone enjoys cooking, so you know there's ways around that. But I think um, the biggest thing is just making time to nourish your family. Like that's like there's no greater importance than that. I I, I don't believe. Um, yeah. And you know I my parents growing up like we used to eat really average food. You know like we'd eat takeout once a week. Um, mm. And like not even like I'm talking like Macca's like not not good takeout. <laughs> um, and, you know, like really processed, you know, mum used to make us like some meals were like ham steaks and pineapple. Like it was a weird processed ham, like a spam kind of thing from a plastic packet with a tin ring of pineapple on top. And that was a meal. And, you know, like we ate really, really poorly and I can see that. But I think if our attitudes can shift and just making some time to cook. And I think there's nothing wrong with cooking a heap of stuff, you know, dedicating a couple of hours on one of your days off, cooking a heap of fresh food and freezing it. Mm. You know, there's, that's always going to be better for you than buying processed food oh just as we're talking here they've just wheeled in that fruit and veg over there that they've probably looks like it's been bought from somewhere uh yet we have this beautiful garden here which is nearly full and there there, there lies the challenges of eating in season and, and education and making sure that there's something on this menu that everyone here is gonna gonna like yeah that's true that's and true. um and, and being able to have a business because of that because people's expectations are that i'm gonna have uh, you know, celery juice and stuff. Yeah, it's, um, it is super interesting. And it's, it is the consumer's perception, like particularly in Melbourne, like if you have a cafe that doesn't have avocado toast, like <laughs> you know, people are outraged. And mm. it's just a really funny mental thing. Um, I don't have an answer to changing that, but I think, I think you know, my generation are, that are coming through now and starting to have, you know, a lot of my friends are having children and stuff. So it's kind of the next generational shift. I think it's going to start to change a lot more. I think um, we're questioning things a lot more. Like, you know, my parents never would have asked, where's that beef from and what, and is it grass or grain fed? No way, not at all. But yeah. now that's like the most commonly asked thing, which that's good, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a really great, great thing. Uh, just quickly, how you, how you, how are, how are diet, diet requirements? How is that? Is that a massive challenge in the kitchen now? Yeah. Even like, <laughs> it is. Um, we're very conscious of it, of course. Um, and if it's a legitimate allergy and stuff, like it's very serious. But mm. what really shits me is when people lie, they're like, and make it up. If you don't like something, tell me you don't like something, it's fine. Don't say you're allergic. You know, like people say, oh, well, allergic to chili, can't eat chili. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, that dish has got capsicum in it, so you can't. Oh, no, no, capsicum's fine. Like, it's a <laughs> yeah, thing, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. So I think, you know, as consumers, please just be honest. Like, if you don't like something, say you don't like it, that's fine. Um, and we'll do our best to take it out and change it. Um, and when you do have an allergy, please tell us immediately. Like last night we did this special Gillinas dinner. We served a bunch of snacks in the cellar door with some drinks, you know, for about an hour, heaps of food going around. Um, and then the guest sits down and says, oh, I'm allergic to nuts. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I'm serving Indian inspired <laughs> food. I've just served cashew nuts and you're highly allergic. And now you decide to tell me like, what is wrong with you? And then she's like, oh no, no, I did, I did notice that that one had that. So I didn't, but I'm like, 
you don't know what's in everything. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, there's a, a stuffed chili that we've just served. You have no idea what's in that stuffing. Yeah. Like, that is really scary. Yeah. <laughs> you got a, like, EpiPen there? <laughs> yeah, no, we do. We do. But there's no, also... No, we do, but there's also a lot of legalities around that. So yeah, we're having okay. an EpiPen. So we got one in, and then we found out that if we administer it incorrectly, we're liable again. So it's like you, you fucked each way. <laughs> okay, back on the plastic just quickly because we've spoken about it a bit, but what can every chef right now do in their kitchen today to, to make a little difference? Like one more little tip. You well, gave us a couple before, but. It'll make a big difference. Um, stop sous vide. Stop cooking in sous vide. Right, that's a really good idea. You know, we haven't, I haven't cooked in sous vide for a long time and I completely understand the convenience. I understand the consistency. Um, I get it. I get it. It makes life easier. <laughs> um, but it's also losing the art of cooking. Yeah. Because um, it's all formulated. It's not touch and feel. You know, it's not feeling the heat of the grill and working with it to the cut of meat or vegetable or fish that you have. Um, so you're losing technique and you're also generating absolute ton of plastic and and his simple thought every single piece of plastic ever made in the world is still in the world mm. it can never break down it's not gone anywhere it's mm. either buried in in a pit somewhere it's either in the ocean or it's in our food you know like i've, I've read some studies that you know there's basically no fish you can pull out of the ocean anymore that doesn't have a trace of plastic inside it and i think that we are blind to it in australia like when you go to bali and i was lucky enough just to be in jordan and there is rubbish everywhere and they don't hide it as much and you think oh they're running a bad country but ours is just tidied up and hid away from us yeah and you know so we sort of feel you know like we're someone special okay a fun question what is the funniest shit that's happened whenever you just broken down and laughed in the kitchen where you're knee slapping who makes that who makes that happen for you the most um uh, joe's pretty funny from time to time um with some of the random things that she comes out with, uh, our young chef George Wintle, he's um he's a great young young person. He's been with us for a few years. He's um he's king of the dad jokes. Uh, which really, I'll give him a run for that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is generally pretty good. Um, I think it's just you know we've got a really fun environment, and it's of course it's serious, and jobs have to get done, and you know from time to time things just happen. You know our head chef Aaron, he's he's a, he's a bit older than everyone else in the team. Um, he's extremely dry. He's extremely grumpy. Uh, he grunts and groans a lot and doesn't do much. But then, you know, he'll just come out with something that's extremely funny from time to time. So I think it just depends on the day, depends on the mood. But um, we've generally got a few laughs flying around the kitchen. Absolutely. Um, I'm jumping around here a bit, but you just won this really cool award. Uh, GQ Chef of the Year. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty wow. wild. It was a um, whole different world, <laughs> that's yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was actually going to ring you cause, to organize this. And then I looked on your, saw on your Instagram that you were there. And I was like, oh shit, I won't ring tonight. That's probably a bad night to ring. Yeah, but, um, yeah. it was um, very different. I mean, to, to get accolades kind of out of the culinary world is pretty pretty cool. And you know, it's a massive. I didn't quite realize how big it is, but it's um, you know, I was up on stage with like you know, Baz Luhrmann won an award. Um, Ash Barty won an award that night. You know, like some really big international players from Australia. So it's um. It's a pretty big deal and I think um, it's taken, you know, it was only not even a week ago, so it's still kind of, and I was straight back to work, so it's, this is my first day off since it happened, so it's kind of all just sinking in and now. And you're talking to me. And we're here on the farm, <laughs> having a chat. Um, Do you feel a sense of responsibility when you win things like that? Like, is there, you know, for what you're doing, your craft, or, or is it just natural to you to just keep on doing what you're doing? Or is there something you go, oh, wait a minute, do I, do I need to? No, I think it's a good, um, it's a good 
It's a good push to keep on doing what we're doing because that means it's been recognised as, as doing the right thing. Yeah, and that's I think really good. It, um, you know, what it does, it motivates young people to, to work in the way in which we work instead of going down another line of, you know, super fine dining, wasteful, you know, restaurant cookery and that kind of stuff. You know, maybe think about ethics, think about sustainability um, and you can be rewarded for it. So I think it just encourages what we're doing a lot more. Yeah, well, that's a great point. So who's uh, who's hot right now? Who's who's young and up and coming? And you know, um, I've been spending a fair bit of time with Josh Nylon, and he doesn't need any more publicity. He's yeah. <laughs> the most publicised chef in Australia at the moment, I reckon. Yeah, but it's yeah. all genuine. It's yeah. all legit. Like you know, we're just together. He was in the same conference in in Galway. Uh, we were in London together um, just just recently, and he actually handed over the GQ award to me. Oh. Uh, it kind of gets handed down each year. Um, I think he's doing some absolutely phenomenal things um, and probably there's a friend of mine in WA, Paul Izakoff is his name and he, in my opinion, is the most underrated chef in Australia. He's worked uh, for Rene at Noma, for Alex at Atala at Dom, he's worked at Pajul in Mexico, you know, he's got one of the best CVs getting around but what he does is truly remarkable. He He's all about working with indigenous communities in Western Australia. Uh, and every year he drives his car from Esperance to Broome and doing dinners along the way. No restaurant, he's got a whole restaurant packed up in his car. He feeds about between 20 and 30 people each dinner, um, serving truly local food that he gathers with the local communities along the way. Um, and I'm lucky enough to do a few dinners with him from time to time. I'm actually cooking with him on Flinders Island in January. We're doing, we're taking over their restaurant down there for a week together. Yeah. Um, and he is, you know, if he was in a restaurant, he would be, you know, he would be the Josh Island of, of yep. our time right now, but he's not. And he just dedicates himself. And it's not about him at all. You know, he's just mm. had his first kid. So he, his partner and now a kid are doing these journeys and he's got maybe four or five staff that take the journey with him and he yeah. somehow manages to pay them. Uh, I have no idea how he manages to pay himself. Yeah. Um, and he's just doing remarkable things, but it's all for, you know, the preservation of indigenous cuisine and, and ingredients. Um, you know, he's got no other agenda other than looking after the land and, and the custodians in, in the best way he possibly can. So I think the work he's doing is, is truly remarkable. You might have to get your award next year. You might be handing it down to him. Well, quite possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you're a chef, like you're out there at the Oak Ridge and like, you know, I think there's a lot of us who pretend we know about wine. How much did you learn when you got there about, about the wine and how important it was with the food? Or did you sort of have a bit of that before you were there? I've, I've you know, coming from Margaret River, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I've done you know, quite a few wine courses. I've made quite a few wines. I actually um, won an award for a wine I made a couple of weeks ago as well, um, which is really cool. I made a, um, a skin contact Pinot Grigio which we won our uh, best wine in Australia from the Drink Easy Awards and second best drink uh, across the board in Australia and got 95 points on the wine front, which for a Pinot Grigio is pretty bloody impressive. Um, wow. So for me, it's always been a really important part. I think what you drink with what you eat is really important. Not that I say, you know, food pairing, I think gets a bit too out of control. Like I don't want to be told <laughs> what I should, should have with something. Um, but I think it is a really important thing to kind of understand what works with what and what doesn't, and and where you can and where you can find different flavors as well. Um, but winemaking for me is a really, it's just really enjoyable, um, and it's got the same sort of ideas as a lot of what we do in the kitchen. You know, you you grow a plant, it flowers, fruit grows. You wait till the fruit ripens. You decide when you want to pick that fruit at what stage of ripeness. You pick it and then you have all the options on how you process it. You know, do you want to crush it and leave it on the 
skins do you want to leave the whole bunches? Do you want to pick all the bunches off, press it and take the skins away? You know, it's just like when you take a peach into the kitchen. Do you want to poach it? Do you want to roast it? Do you want to eat it fresh? You know, so it's a similar thought process there. And then, you know, being pretty obsessed with fermentation, there's so many levels of fermentation that you can take it through and different processes. So for me, just the, the science behind it, I really love. Um, and how you can create different flavors from one little grape is, is really cool. Yeah, that is amazing. How important, like the garden that you guys have got, like for me, when we do like little chef tours and we take them to a garden, all of a sudden there's this whole new respect for food, how long it takes to get from A to Z, the packaging. How, how often should a chef be either getting in the garden or just, you know, growing something? I think the connection is really important. Um, when you understand how hard it is to grow and produce something, your respect levels grow like so much. Um, and I think when you can understand how a plant grows, it's really important. Like, so, if, you know, you have a seed of coriander, uh, which you can use as a spice, or you can plant it in the ground and grow some coriander. And then you get a beautiful coriander plant and it's lovely. And we all know it as the same bunch. But then when it goes to flower, you know, the coriander grows to almost a plant that looks like fennel, like it kind of grows in a very different way. So then you've got a whole nother product. Uh, and then as the plant goes to flower, you get these beautiful flowers, which you can use, which have huge flavor that can be used in different, different ways. They can be pickled to preserve, they can be used fresh, uh, or they can be ground up into a paste. And then you get the green seeds, which are delicious, probably the most delicious part of the whole plant. And they can be salted and turned into little capers, or they could be pickled, or Joe uses them on desserts a lot as well. Mm. Uh, and then in that process, when the, when it's, when the seeds are coming out, the plant puts all of its energy into that, so it stops producing the chlorophyll. So the leaves go a beautiful kind of red and orangey, purpley kind of colors. So then you've got a whole nother product again, mm. which is still, the flavor is a bit more subdued, and it, but that's kind of not a bad thing with such a strong flavored plant. And it looks awesome. And then the seeds dry out and then you get the dried seeds for a spice and then the wind blows and they blow to the next patch and then they grow again. You know, like when you can kind of understand that process, I think your respect levels just go through the roof. That just must make you be able to plate it differently as well, have a whole new respect for how it goes on the plate Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. Like yeah. last year I, I posted a photograph on Instagram of a plate with like all of these different colored coriander leaves, some kind of the same leaf shape as we know it, some sort of going to the confetti sort of thing. And I had chefs messaging me going, oh my God, where did you get that heirloom coriander? <laughs> it's like, holy shit, the disconnect is huge. Yeah. Because it's just the same plant that we all know, but it's just... So, so I just asked you about one thing then, and you just rattled off all that stuff over one product, <laughs> right? Yeah. Now that's truly amazing. Like, and you know, it's, it's really, you know, I think I have a little bit of it, you know, because I was a, a chef as well, but um, that's amazing, you know, that you could actually just say all that. And... Um, and a lot of that probably comes from getting into the garden. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, garden's a huge part of it. And I think, <laughs> I think um, you know, veg is becoming more and more the focus of our food, which is absolutely fantastic. But I think also connecting with, you know, your, your protein producers is a really big one. You know, going to a farm, when you understand how hard it is to raise a cow and how long it takes and how much they eat and how much work that goes into it. Mm. You know, I think that's really important stuff as well. Um, you know, we don't serve any seafood at the ocean, uh, at the ocean, at the restaurant, because <laughs> we're nowhere near the ocean. Um, you know, so I, I, my knowledge on that is is very low because it's not something that I spend a lot of time on. But I'm definitely, you know, land-based animals and, and fruit and veg. But I think any connection you can make um, and understanding, you know, if you speak with a beef farmer at the moment, you know, it's tough. It's yes. real tough. Yes. So, you, you know, yeah. instead of arguing about your 
box of sirloins costing three dollars more a kilo. When you talk with them, just man, to pay it and figure it out, like <laughs> because <laughs> because otherwise they won't be around for much longer. What and about- you know the biggest things that are happening with with meat producers at the moment is three things: they're either committing suicide, which mm-hmm. is really fucked up. Yeah, leading either, cause of death. They're either the about to. Yeah. Or they're just getting by, and is that a nice way to to think about our you know industry in Australia? No, like it's it's really bad. So how important is it with with vegetables? Like we we sort of all know the rules with meat, how you got to use a whole animal because it's a living thing, and we don't want to disrespect that life. What about with vegetables? Uh, how how important is that to to use the whole vegetable? I think we spoke about it about you know making sure that you you tell me. Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um, you know, waste is a lack of imagination. So I think the more you can think about things, and I'm not saying start eating onion skins because they're gross and like there's nothing you can. You can make them. a soup, yeah. Yeah, or you can use yeah, absolutely for yeah. sure, for sure. Uh, you know, often uh, that's probably one of the hardest things to make delicious <laughs> yeah. for sure. Um, but you know, I think there's just different ways. You know, even if it's like like I don't peel many of my vegetables. Like I haven't peeled a root vegetable in years. Yeah. Like there's, there's so much flavor and nutrients is in the skin of a carrot or a swede. Or uh, a, even if there was a little bit of dirt, dare I say it, could that be good for you? Well, most definitely. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, people are taking dirt pills these days as supplements yeah. because, you know, they're, they're lacking these bacteria in their bodies. But, you know, you, can, you know it's, it's not that difficult to get a little scar and scrub them down and or give them a little soak to clean them up. Um, so that's one thing. But then if you are going to, to peel your stuff, you know, you can say we use carrot as the example. You can peel your carrot if that's what you want to do for whatever reason. Uh, you can dehydrate that and grind it down and make a beautiful yellow, uh, sorry, orange, bright orange powder that you can then put back over the carrot dish or something like that. You know, there's really simple stuff. Um, the tops of your carrot, you can, you know, a nice thing that we, can, we do with them is um, lightly barbecue them. Um, yeah. So they kind of wilt, get a bit of char and smoke. Uh, and then chop them down and you can sort of put it into a blender or a water and pestle and make like a little pesto-y green sauce. You know, you can add some nuts or seeds yeah, to yeah. that. And, the, yeah. Our organic farm that we use, I recommend everyone does that. Like, yeah, because it's organic and I know that they haven't done anything wrong and it's, I'm confident that everything's going to be okay with it. It's like that. Yeah. And obviously your garden's um, very organic. Yeah, and, um, you know, a beetroot's a great example. A beetroot, what is it, like 70% of the beetroot is not the bulb, not the root. It's like the plant above it. But for me, beetroot leaves, beetroot greens are delicious. You know, mm. they're, they're super yummy. So We do waste an uh, absolute crap load of food in Australia, really. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think, I can't remember the stats exactly, but it's around two-thirds. Is that because labor's so expensive and to do things, it's more convenient just to do that, do that, chop it up? Absolutely, not, yeah. absolutely. So, you know, often, um, often I think, I can't remember, it's in my, in my talk I recently did, I think... It's about two-thirds of food produced on a farm never leaves the farm just yeah. because it's either too big, too small, a little bit underripe, a little bit overripe, or simply there's no one there to process it just yeah. because labor labor costs are so high, uh, which, again, I think is really important that people are being paid properly, but there's just an imbalance in the system. Yeah. How does that work now? Because if I want to be an apprentice chef or you know, even just a guy who wants to learn how to cook, now, with overtime and all that stuff, it, a company's really getting smashed around because, you know, I want to work for free and maybe that I have and now I'm putting my hand up because I wasn't paid or, you know, what's what's going on in this world? Just briefly. Yeah, it's a really tough one. It's a really sensitive one at the moment. I think for a long time, people weren't being paid properly, but, you know, it's, it's really important that people get paid well. But a lot of, it's like anything, right? If you want to be really great at it, you give it a lot of time. Yeah. And cooking is an art. Um, it's also a job, so it's a fine line. But I think there needs to be a bit more balance within people wanting to give their time to learn more, um, mm. but also being paid properly. So, 
what the answer is, I'm not sure. But at the moment, um, you know, there's a lot of colleagues that have got into a lot of strife um, unfairly because they're not the only ones that have done it. Yeah. Like a lot of people have done yeah, it yeah. for a long time. And it's particularly people with a profile are getting really brought down on this stuff, which um, which is pretty hard to see. So I think, you know, we're... We're now paying a lot more, which is um, which is a good thing. It gives a chance for our staff to be able to buy a nice car, to, to buy a home, um, and have a life. Most importantly, you know. Good question. How do you balance your life, man? How do you stay fit? How do you look after you? Uh, it's a hard one. Um, yeah. You know, we I try to do a lot of running. I try to run, you know, between sort of eight to ten k's three times a week, uh, which is a really good thing. Um, but again, like I haven't this week because I've been I was in Sydney uh, on Thursday and then I. You know, did two um, functions at work on Friday and Saturday night with a full restaurant. Sunday, uh, Monday planning for an event I did last night on Tuesday. So all of a sudden my routine's gone. So it's really hard to keep up with it. But, you know, even coming here today, I could have just jumped in the car. You know, I woke up after five hours sleep and I was like, all right, cool, let's get this done. Yeah. I could have just jumped in the car and drove, but instead I went, no. So I got on my bike and I rode. And you were here early. And I was here early. It's actually probably because I avoided Melbourne traffic because I got to cycle down the river yeah. instead. So, you know, I think just um, getting out is really important, even if it's just walking instead of taking an Uber, um, even if it's a walk through the city, it's still being outside. I think getting outside, getting out of the kitchen, getting off your phone a little bit, you know, like getting off Instagram for half a day is a good thing. Um, you know, I had a, sh- a colleague of mine who's just taken a new head chef role and he's doing really well, killing it. And he said, oh, Matt, I'm really struggling with creativity at the moment. I can't think of any dishes. And I said, I said to him, I was like, mate, first of all, get off Instagram for, for a week. Just forget about it because all that's doing is changing your ideas mm. and go back to those cookbooks that inspired you in the early days yeah. and have a look at them. You know, books to me like um, The French Laundry, you know, was, is a great example of, of a book, you know, that was written in 1999 and it's still relevant today. Um, stuff like that go back to what inspired you as as a chef but um, you know for me I'm lucky I can get onto the farm Um, you know we can go down to the coast and and jump in the ocean try to surf not very good anymore Um, (laughs) you know we do I hate to talk about foraging because it's too trendy these days but we do a lot of it anyway but even that you know going for in autumn going for a walk in the forest and picking mushrooms is like one of the biggest moments of clarity you can have not just as a chef but as a person but all mushrooms are edible right (laughs) <laughs> some some just once. <laughs> some, some, <laughs> correct. correct. That, that pine mushroom season and the slippery jacks and the great ghost. And it is. It's like Easter for adults if you if you love food, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's one of the best things you can ever do. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think just um getting out and getting amongst it, getting, you know, like we're sitting in this little farm now. You've taken me to one in Brisbane. There's definitely one in Sydney. You know, like engaging with your community in this sort of level. And even if it's just coming down for half an hour having a coffee and looking at a chicken walk around like it's pretty cool sharing information too like you said before like it used to be a bit more closed i know that uh a couple that our organic farm green culture they are sharing farming techniques so they're like hey come over we will show you everything there's no secrets this is how we do it rah, rah. i feel that whole thing of sharing takes away a bit of the you know scaredness to ask how what do you do with you know whatever it might be yeah absolutely i think it's um it's just making a better industry it's making everyone enjoy it more um, sharing information is definitely beneficial for sustainable reasons as well. Like yeah. if we've got a technique to use something up, I'm going to tell everyone about it. Like it's not, I don't do it to be the cool guy. It's just because it's what should be done. So by sharing those ideas, you can, you can minimize waste. You can find other uses for ingredients. You can, you know, create more delicious flavors. Then you are the cool guy. A couple of weird, funny questions, but what's your favorite fruit? Favorite fruit would be... 
probably a mango, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's no greater joy than just like ripping off the skin, <laughs> dripping down your arm, all over your face, like eating with your hands. It's great. Favorite vegetable? Ooh, changes at the moment. It's probably asparagus because it's really good right now. But you know, in the middle of winter, it's pro- or autumn, it's probably a mushroom. Um, what about uh, favorite tattoo? Uh, I really like the pizza slice on my arms. It's stupid. <laughs> Favorite pizza place in Australia? Have you got one of those? Uh, Leonardo's Pizza Palace in Carlton. Nice. Um, what's your dream car? Uh, Land Rover Defender. <laughs> nice, nice. Very hard to drive, but <laughs> <Yeah>. very cool. <laughs> yeah, so I've driven one. Um, I don't know what else to ask you, man, but you're awesome and I really get inspired by what you're doing and it helps me in my business. So know that, you know, some of the stuff that you've done over the years makes me really think about what I'm doing. So even though we don't really get to work together too much, what you're doing and, you know, what Yost, you know, you guys did at the very, very start has made me think about what I'm doing and um, dare I say it, my next project I'll be engaging yourself and, and probably Yost as well to, to help me with. But um, Anytime, yeah, mate. We're really, always there. Really excited. So... For punters, where what's your Instagram? Uh, Chef Matt Stone. Yep. At Chef Matt Stone. Yep. Yep, nice. Got to get Joe on next time. Um, oh yeah, one last question that I had in here. What's the best thing about Matt Stone? Uh, well, I'm not allowed a... to say Joe Barron. <laughs> I know Yost did in somewhere. <laughs> oh, I can't all the time. Um, I guess uh, the thing I enjoy about what I get to do the most is is inspiring the next generation to do better than we've done. Beautiful. Matt Stone, thank you for being a part of the podcast. Geez, wine, absolute pleasure. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> we just had an awkward handshake just for the record. <laughs> thank you, mate. Cheers, mate.